And in Acts chapter 9, God said, halt. And he introduced himself to that man. Changed his life. I pray that Jesus has changed your life too. The Apostle Paul's life was no longer searching out Christians to destroy and imprison. His goal was to search out to the ends of the earth, and he was going to tell people about this Jesus whom he personally met. And because he met Jesus, he is considered an apostle as well as Peter, James, and John and those others who had seen the resurrected Lord. That's the guy who wrote this book of Colossians. Now, once you realize that, right now, if I could take you almost imagine in your mind to a scene where he's in some kind of low uh, accommodations. He is not on the third floor of some plush prison. He is being treated pretty poorly, and he is in jail, and he's not really sure if he's going to be released and all that stuff. He's pretty confident in his spirit because God had already told him he's going to be a witness to kings, and even and by implication, even to Rome and possibly to the Pharaoh to his face. And so when the apostle was writing the book of Colossians, he's in this kind of a dungeon type place. And if you, if you read this book, as we're going to read in a moment, you don't feel sorry for him. Man, that poor guy, he has to only eat vegetables. No, no that's, when, when you're picturing Paul down in this dungeon, he's in jail because he is now the Jesus freak. He's the one that's proclaiming the good news of Christ. And people are like, shut him up, cancel him. And now having had this great turnaround in his life, he's seen new people come to faith. God has been saving souls around him. And every time he was on a mission trip, people were converted. They, were, they, were, they put aside the old and they embraced Christianity. Or as they called it in those days, the way. That was before the Mandalorian picked it up, of course, for those of you that know that show. Paul is in prison, and he's writing to four particular groups, to the people at Colossae, to the people at Ephesus, to the people at Philippi, uh, and and, uh, so it's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And he writes to that general book of Galatians, which is to a, a wider part of the mountainous region of Turkey there. It's in those four books that you hear messages echoed and echoed and echoed. And sometimes you can find some of your favorite verses in in, in the one that was written to the church at Ephesus. And some of your favorite verses might even be in this little book that was written to the church at Colossae. I've had pictures of it before. I showed it to you. There's not much of Colossae left. It's like a tell. uh, and, And you can tell that people were there before. But uh, there's no thriving business. Laodicea is about 11 mi- or 5 kilometers or 11, 11 kilometers, 5 miles away. And that's where most people, if they go in that region, if you're Christians, you go there, there's more to see. But the reason the book was written there to Colossae was because that's where the Christians were. And they were informed by their local minister that was sending communications to the apostle. And if you could just picture Paul in that dungeon sitting there with his ink and writing out, dear believers in Colossae, what do you think he would tell them? Obviously, you know that he doesn't have a sob story. He doesn't go around and say, it's miserable here. Send an army and get me out. He's not worried about him. He's concerned for them. And that's what you find in these four chapters. The first chapter is the introduction. And in that introduction, he is so excited about hearing of their faith. And he mentions the the, the lay minister that's there. And then he gives them a little bit of doctrine. He's rehearsing what he shared with them when he was preaching to them week after week after week when he was there. And then after he does that, there's a lot of application. In chapter 2, in the middle part, all the way towards the end of the book, you find all this stuff. Okay, this is how we should live. And as I shared with you last week, how difficult it would be for us to have our missionary from Greece tell us how we ought to live our lives. But that's what they got. 
because it was not just a mere missionary. It was one sent by God with the truth that we needed to hear. And it's echoed, as I said, to the church at Ephesus, to the church at Colossae, the church at Philippi, and also the church in that area of Galatia. Let's reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word. We'll be looking at uh, Colossians chapter 3. I want to pick up on verse 10 to 15. So if you could look there, uh, our, our verses are going to focus on the end here in verses uh, uh, 12 through 15. So I'll read 12 first. I'll look at verse 12 first, and then we'll come back. Uh, where he says, put on then God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body." I want you to pay attention and reverently heed to the public reading of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word. And, and going back to verse 10, where the Apostle Paul has just told them to put off these things. Now he says, put on this new self, which is verse 10, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And here in this new place, in this new self, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. But Christ is. Christ is all and in all. And because of that, put on, you elect people. That's where the ecclesia comes from, the called out ones. You who are called out from this world, the elect of God, you're holy and beloved. The word holy has to deal with set apart. And beloved means you receive the love of God. You know, just like we sang, we are the child of God. Yes, I am. I pray you are too. And then he says, put on these things. So this is the text that we're going to be looking at today. And as you uh, reflect upon it, I want you to know that this is a part of the, uh, this is a hard part of the passage because this is where we're being told how to live in the way, in the Christian life. He says in this passage, in this brief, you must forgive. You must forgive. Let me say that again. You must forgive. It's a gut punch. Amen. You can't simply read it and move on. I don't think the people that got it at first said, oh, isn't that nice, and just kept reading. You must forgive. It's sticky, it's uncomfortable, but it's also amazing, and it is so potent. Every time I read it, I always go back to the other verse that where it says, he nailed it. And that goes back to chapter 2, beginning in verse 13 to 15, and it connects with forgiveness as well. This is earlier on, the apostle was writing, and he said, And you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. This, that's verse 13 of chapter 2. You see, he's already declared that all of our sins are already forgiven, and he explains how it was done by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, against you and me, with all of the legal demands that are associated with that debt. This he set aside when he nailed it to the cross. Isn't it neat? He nailed it. He took it with him to the cross and paid it in full. Wow, that's pretty exciting. And that's one of the things I want us to be able to grasp in today's sermon of application. Uh, this means that, that this sermon is not about the equation of salvation, uh, which is basically saying salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Nothing more is added. That's what it means to be reformed, by the way, is that the equation of salvation doesn't change. What part did you play in it? And if you understand that answer where it's not just the silence, but you get it, then it's like, wow. So when you start hearing all the do's, 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 do this, do this, do this, do this, it's not a part of the equation salvation. It's because of salvation. I call it that it is uh, the life that you now live. If I quote from Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, you all know that verse. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life that I now live, 
which is the sanctification. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, that's what Paul's thinking about from that prison cell when he says, you've got a life to live. And let me show you how Christ wants you to live it. This text is a part of the biblical counsel given to people like you and I in a small church in a small town. And it's because they didn't quite get it. The counselor that's giving us, this is the apostle himself. He's been informed by, shall we say, somebody narked on the people. They were told on. If if you go into chapter 1, you can see it beginning in verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us about your love in the Spirit. Uh Uh-oh. That was the reporting. It wasn't fake news. The Apostle Paul was getting this information from a reliable source about the church that was in uh, Colossae, and they needed some help in this area of forgiveness. And he says, even when Epaphras told us, he said, uh, this is verse 9, and from that day forward, since we heard, we continue to pray for you. In other words, we know it's not easy. We're asking God to help you, asking that he may fill, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom, and even with spiritual understanding. You see, the Apostle Paul wanted the church people to understand things. It's not like some denominations that don't want to give you a Bible and don't want you ever to open it up and read it for yourself. We definitely want you to get it. When you get it, there's peace and joy. And a lot more beautiful things. Epaphras, when he saw his people there, they were obviously, by implication, they weren't very exercised when it comes to forgiveness. And I believe that that was one of the triggers that caused the writing of these books for people to understand it. And as the gospel is communicated to this community, uh, there is a tendency for people not to simply forgive as they ought to forgive. It is an application of salvation that appears to be unnatural even for believers. Is it your first tendency to forgive people who do you wrong? Is it ever your tendency to forgive people? So how does this fit in? We get forgiveness, it's obvious in the text, and we are supposed to give it. And I want to explain that for you. So if you take the notes, there's a few pages on the back there for those of you that want the fourth point supplement. Uh, They're easy to remember. The first, forgiveness is a byproduct of grace. Forgiveness is a byproduct of grace. The second point that I'll deal with is forgiveness is a response to conflict. And thirdly, forgiveness is a blessing from God. So when you realize these three things, which are right in the passage there, uh, forgiveness is a byproduct of grace. Forgiveness is a response to the conflict that arises, and forgiveness is a blessing from God. When, when we unpack these things, Lord willing, it will flow more from you. I brought a cup up here, and uh, if this was empty, you wouldn't have any problem if I just did this and threw it at you, would you? But if it's got something in it, it'll spill out. I would love for the forgiveness that the scripture talks about to spill out of you, not because there's just a little bit of it there, but because there's a lot. You'll find that that is a beautiful understanding as we look at the text. Uh, Point one, forgiveness is a byproduct of grace. Uh, And when you get here, grace comes first. I, I have to make sure you get this is because this is in the application section of the book. Remember, doctrine comes first, and then comes application. You can look through all of Paul's writings, and Romans is a great illustration. You get all these doctrines of justification and of condemnation and and of sanctification, all those, uh, even even of election and, and of depravity, all these things are in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And then chapter 12, then he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that because of all this stuff that this is how you live, that you present your whole self, including your body, as a sacrifice, one that is given to God. Not that you would be put on an altar to be killed, but that you would offer it to be used. It's so beautiful when you understand it, and that's what we find in Colossians chapter 3, is that he's saying, present yourself 
And this is the way you do it, is that you forgive. It's the way of compassion, as I've entitled the sermon. The first point here is that you realize that it is a byproduct of grace. Grace comes first. In the text that we're looking at it, you can see that the exchange, the way of exchange already took place, and then also the way of righteousness has already taken place. So if you look at the bulletin card, you can see on the back there that that in chapter 3, verses 3 through 9, there was a, a recognition that a change needs to take place. Remember as I stood up here with my black jacket and I was sweating to death in it and finally I was able to take it off now this is not a black jacket it's not supposed to be the black jacket uh, this is supposed to be a blue one okay so I'm not this is not the bad thing but uh, when I took off that black jacket and I went back some of you caught on that I hung it back up with the implication that I would put it back on later very very sharp That illustration broke down at that point. When you put off this sin in your life, you're not supposed to just preserve it so you can put it on later. Okay, so grace comes and it opens our eyes up to see the ugliness of sin and the beauty of holiness. And when we see the ugliness of sin, we want to take that sin off and put it away and we want to put on something in its place, the great exchange. So if, you ha- if you're familiar with that, we're supposed to put off sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Those are the things that you find in verse 5. Those are the black jacket that needs to be taken off. They'll make you sweat and squirm, no doubt about it. And when he, after he makes that list of actions, he tells you about the attitudes that, are, that you also that are sloughed off. And I'm thinking of how a snake moves out of its old skin. It leaves it behind. And we're supposed to get rid of anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your own mouths, and the lies that also come off your lips. Boy, if you're in Colossae right now, you're saying, boy, I love that Pastor Paul. He is just the nicest guy. He makes me feel wonderful. I just want to come back every Sunday when he's preaching. You understand, this is, this is the way that the Apostle Paul is saying that you can't be a postmodernist, even in back in his day. You can't just say, let anybody do what anybody wants to do. Just because it's right in their own eyes, it doesn't mean that it's right in God's eyes. And when you realize this list says that sexual immorality says, eh, even though the culture says it's okay. What about impurity? Eh, the culture says it's okay. You can have smut even on your phone. You can certainly turn on your TV and get it. Passions for secular things, uh, evil desires. I mean, it's so strange these days that witches are, in, that are, that are back in the news. You know, that, that, that even on the Marvel movies, they, they were, uh, with the WandaVision, they were promoting the witches of Salem as being neat ladies. Covetous. Everybody wants something more. Right now, it's even hard to get things like hot tubs and boats. Why? Because everybody's buying them in COVID. Since you're not allowed to get around with other people, you go ahead and make your life as comfortable as you want. To, to keep up with the Joneses that you can't even see except through your, from your front porch. On all these things we're supposed to put off, and the grace of God allows us to see these things as sin, and, and, and we want to get rid of them. And as this grace comes into place, we want to, to uh, replace them or to exchange them, as I like to say, and that exchange takes place by putting off the six things and putting on the five. What are the five things you're supposed to put on? These five beautiful things are supposed to be, and they're found in verse 12, put on... A compassionate heart. Did any of you put a compassionate heart on this morning? What's a compassionate heart look like? Do you know what an ugly heart looks like? When you looked in the mirror, did you see a compassionate soul? Secondly, you're supposed to put on kindness. I'm letting this sink in. What's the opposite of kindness? Meanness, rudeness. Isn't that easier to put on? How about a grumpy face that goes along with that? Normally, a, kind, uh, a kindness has accompany it with a countenance, too. Uh, third is humility. Wow. I'm not the greatest. You know, instead of, you know, you're looking in there saying, I'm Muhammad Ali, I can, I'm the greatest, I'm the best that ever has been. You find 
This humility is what we're supposed to put on. It's not all about us. Third, or fourthly is meekness. Most people today don't even know what meekness is. That archaic biblical word, I'll get into in a moment, but it's, it has to do with strength. We're supposed to put on a strength that is not out of control. And fifth is patience. And I'm telling you, don't pray for patience. It is a bad thing to pray for. Now, those are the things that we're supposed to put on by grace, and they actually do come, and they are put on. And uh, it's kind of interesting. I told you that there was the way of exchange. You get rid of the six, and you put on these five. And then there was also the way of righteousness that we looked at last time, that when God's grace opens your eyes up to the new person that you are in Christ, because you're united to him, this new self, you put away the old practices of the old self, and the new self has these new practices uh, where it's being renewed. You understand more of the way God... God made man and woman in his image, and he did it very good. And that's being renewed. Day by day, you recognize that you're not a, a chance. You're not a product. Uh, you're, not, you're not an accident. You're not a meaningless blob. You actually mean something. You have so much value, that soul that will never die, that Jesus was willing to go to Calvary's cruel cross, not because he needed some other new gadget or new asset. It's because he cared for the value of you. And this new person, it transcends all of the bickering that our current culture is into, where they're race baiting and whether they're, they're, they're trying to, to say you're more woke than somebody else. I mean, when they go through that list and he says, uh, when you put on the path of righteousness, these other things are, are not significant about whether you're in the in crowd or not, being Jew or Greek, whether you are circumcised or uncircumcised or uncircumcised, whether you're religious upbringing or not, uh, when it comes to barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, all of those kind of things have to do with your education, your manners, and even your, your ability to communicate. You know, are you kind of more hillbilly-ish? Are you more hick? Are you more uh, polished? Are you more elite? All of these things fade away. You can read the book of James as well. We're not supposed to have favoritism in the body of Christ. The way of righteousness changes all of that. And grace is what opens our eyes up to that. So once you realize those two things have happened, then grace also is connected to a justice. That when we're told that we have to forgive, now we know that the grace came first, and I want you to know how grace fits in. When it comes to justice, justice is when you get what you deserve, mercy is when you don't get what you deserve, and grace is when you get something else, a gift, which you don't deserve. And that's why Forgiveness here, since it's under grace, since grace precedes it and grace abounds in it, I can say forgiveness is getting something that you also don't deserve. Forgiveness is a neat thing. It's under the banner of grace. God's grace is a powerful commodity, and yet it's often misconstrued as injustice. God's grace is never to be misunderstood as somebody saying, oh, well, no big deal, when you say, oh, well, and no big deal, what are you basically communicating? You got away with it. You know, there's no consequences. Imagine training your children like that. You tell them, don't eat the cookie in the cookie jar, and they eat it, and they say, oh, well, it was a nice cookie. What do you expect that that child will do next? Steal your jewelry? Steal your wallet? You know, this is really interesting that there, you can't have it as misjustice. God's grace is never to be disgraced as to give license to others. You know, when people are uh, inclined to have this sexual freedom in, in 2020s, okay, then uh, some people, even in the church, have said, oh, well, and then they've also said, well, instead of you getting um, pregnant, we'll go ahead and make sure that you get the training you need so you have the, the condoms and all these other kind of things. Can you imagine? God's grace is never to be dis disgraced as to give license to sin. God's grace is not wimpy, shy, or hidden. It is something that you can stand upon. It is mentioned by the apostle almost all the time in the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, and there is grace, 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 grace abounding. And so I want you to know that forgiveness, this call for forgiveness, is inside of grace. 
It is a byproduct of grace. So that's why I want to look at those things that you put on. Grace changes you. God takes you from being a sinner and brings you into being a son of God. We call that regeneration. The salvation equation is already met. It's already been paid for. It, you're saved. When you are, are, are under the blood, you're already a Christian. Now, once you are a Christian, now what do you do? And this is where he says, you have this compassionate heart for others. You see the value of other souls. See, that's what compassion does. I believe the eyes of faith let you see that people are people that are valued. And rather than seeing them as monkeys or, as, or seeing them as some kind of an animal that just does whatever it does. If you see it as an ant that stepped on or whether you see it as a, as a little cute dog that you'll do anything for. You see, a compassionate heart is something that cares for those souls. When you look secondly at kindness, you see the delight of intimacy. Because without kindness, you can't get close. When thirdly, with humility, you see the delight of who you really are. You're not God. You haven't arrived. You know, all those other things that tell you about uh, your wrongdoing stinks. You know, or as some have said, you've got junk in your trunk. And those of you that are really polished at coming to church and looking really nice... Let me just talk to your spouse or your kids. Don't be deceived. This idea of humility is recognizing who you are, seeing the value of what God has saved. Fourth is, has to do with meekness. This meekness, like I told you, is strength. And the best illustration I'll never forget when it said Moses was a meek man, he was a strong man, but his strength was under control almost all the time until he hit the rock with his staff. He was a little out of control on that one. But this is all about a horse, the picture of a horse that has all this horsepower, but it's no good. It can't be harnessed unless you can put a bit in the horse's mouth, unless you can put a saddle on the back and you can be able to ride that horse or have that horse pull the plow. See, that's meekness is all that strength is usable. And you see, in Christ, we have all that strength that he's given us as a human being, but it's supposed to be harnessed. And the fifth thing there is patience. Instead of just seeing, uh, as I said, instead of just seeing the value of a heart or seeing the value of an attitude or seeing the value of who you are or seeing the value of power that's under control, it's also seeing the clock as being a good thing. See, patience makes you wait. When the ketchup commercial put that out, anticipation, that was such a good commercial. It really captured that idea of having to wait for something good. Delayed gratification. That God says it's not all about immediate, it's about I'm preparing a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. When you see, when you have this gift of patience, then you can realize that on God's timetable, things are going to work out. I, I take you to, to Genesis chapter 51. That's where Joseph is finally an old man. But when he was younger, back in chapter 36 and 37, he was despised and rejected by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. He was put into prison and he was forgotten. People lied to him. It was a miserable life. And then in chapter 51, when we see the rest of the story, Joseph is able to say, wow, you guys, you did all those evil things. But God worked it together for good. And the only reason I can tell you that is that he understood the clock. He had patience. God is not mocked. On, in God's timing, he, people will reap. And this is Galatians chapter 2. I mean, you can see it clearly. Now, when you realize you've been called into one body, you're to have your hearts ruled by Christ with peace. And that's all a part of that passage. Now, I, I, and, and this is so, so very valuable uh, when you realize all of this stuff that grace is the by, uh, uh, grace, we should say, forgiveness is the byproduct of grace. When you have all of these things that have changed your life, this is a new person. And in this new status, you have the command, the imperative to forgive. The second point in this sermon is about, uh, the, as, I, as I was saying it to you before, the second point has to do with the forgiveness being a response to conflict. Do you have to forgive 24-7? I forgive you, 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 I forgive you. You know, the idea there is everybody's doing you wrong, so you just keep forgiving everything. You could spend your whole day, your whole life, forgiving everything and everybody. Is that what's meant? 
No, the Apostle Paul is writing to these believers and he says, if a conflict arises, forgiveness should be the response. Now, I want to explain that to you. It's a response to a conflict. It's a response to a situation. If you have your Bibles open there, you can follow along that it's, it's in verse 13 where it says, and we urge uh, in, in verse 13 of the text where he says, bearing with one another and if... One has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So if you notice there, there is an if clause, but even before that, at the beginning of the, of the verse 13, there is this verb called bearing. Now, this is kind of interesting because uh, um, I always think when you see the word bear, I think of Kodiak with the gigantic bears, okay? I saw a small one. But that's not what we're talking about here. When, when this text, the apostle from the prison in uh, where he was being uh, kept, he writes this idea of bearing with one another. And it's quite, quite interesting. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So here, in, in understanding that this is a response, the, uh, the, the way that you find this response, the setting for this response, is that you're bearing with one another through life. Now, the idea of burying sometimes sounds like it's like a ball and chain. Like if you get married and you're going to have this ball and chain attached to you for the rest of your life, happy am I. Some people view marriage like that because it's been so devolved in our culture. But when you actually have this picture of marriage that's from Genesis chapter 2, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one, and that's a beautiful thing. And what it means here in burying, it's the Greek word has to do with carry. It's two people can carry it. It's like we said about cleaning up the church and the grounds. You know, we have over 10 acres here. I think maybe it's up to 12. We have a lot of acres here. And if it's only left up to Walt to do it, you all better start feeding them. Energy bars. It's too big. But many hands get the job done. If we all carry the weight, then it gets taken care of. Okay, do you understand how that works? That when two can carry the load together? And this is why he says we go through life in the way, bearing up with each other. And now initially you might say that you have to put up with all these people. Man, did you see those people? They were so frustrating me at church today. I can't believe it. I'm glad they sat on the other side of church. Some of you might interpret bearing with one another as you're putting up with it. But that's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be everybody lifts up the thing. If we have to carry a boat, we all get underneath it and lift it up together. And that's why he says you're going to go through the Christian life bearing up these things. And the idea of bearing up is not just found here in, in, uh, in, in the book of Colossians. Paul uses it in Thessalonians. He says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. In other words, you come alongside and you work with them. Uh, in Romans chapter 15, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and build him up. If I take you to Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression or sin, you who are spiritual, restore that person with that gentle spirit. Okay? And then it says, keep watch on yourself, uh, which has to deal with humility. Don't think yourself to be too puffed up. Because he says, you might be tempted by the same thing in just a, a, a matter of minutes. And then he goes in verse 2 of Galatians 6, bear one another's burdens. And this time he says, you fulfill what? This is the way. This is Christ's way is that we bear the burdens together. We come alongside and we help because this is not easy on our own. And we're a part of one body. And as a result, the one body is supposed to work together. So if the one hand says, I'm not going to help you know, then the foot says, I'm not going to participate because I'm not the hand. Then what happens if everybody quits participating? No work's going to be done. There's going to be no kingdom advance. If I'm not, I don't, I don't feel like even my right hand and left hand, they're not going to work together. This one will do everything, and then this one will do nothing. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to bear with each other and work with each other. Now, in that context of that being the way, it's in, while we're bearing with one another, if 
a conflict arises. Now, if you have that, that conditional clause there at the end of verse 13, if a conflict arises while we are dealing with each other as we're saved by grace, we've already put on all these things of humility. We've already put on meekness. We've already put on uh, all, this, this, all the other things there, some of the beautiful things. Then he says, a conflict arises. This is where I want to just pause. Where would, an, where would a conflict arise? I mean, isn't the church a perfect place? I mean, you all come here freely, right? And you even dump your money in the boxes or send it online. I mean, this is the grace place. Everything is wonderful here. I didn't hear any amen. You see, see the struggle here is that, is that we're all sinners. And even though we have been saved, we have not been uh, taken to heaven yet. We are still dealing with this battle in our souls. We wrestle against the old nature and the new nature. We're supposed to put off that old and never put it back on. And, and, and when conflicts arise, it's oftentimes that a conflict arises because self is in the way. Now, I have a right hand and a left hand. How does my left hand get in a disagreement with my right hand? It's pretty easy. I don't know. Because the, this left hand is being directed by what? Hopefully something in here. And this right hand is being directed by something within here. Okay? The brain is controlling the left hand and the right hand. And if that's the case, you might say, well, it was the left half of the hemisphere of the brain and the right half of the hemisphere. You know, you might get into those details. But the same brain is telling my body what to do. And, and, and so should my right hand and my left hand be in competition? No, they're supposed to work together. And this is the whole point. When we're bearing with one another, there shouldn't be a conflict arise. When a conflict arises, it means that something's wrong. One of the nerve endings might be cut. You understand what I'm trying to say? There might be a broken bone over here. Usually it's because of a sin that creeps up. It's one of those things. Let me read that list for you again. One of these things is missing when a conflict arises. I'll read it for you. A compassionate heart, a kind spirit, a humbleness of character, meekness, this strength that's under control, and patience for God's timing. If those things are all there, then there shouldn't be a conflict that arises. But most of the time, there's a conflict that arises because one of those things hasn't been met. Now, when that conflict arises, you know, and you get, woo, 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 we got a conflict, we got a conflict. It's almost like if you're going down the grocery aisle and there's something falls over, we have something in aisle six. You know what I'm talking about. There's something that goes off. Now, when that alarm goes off in your own brain and you have a conflict with another person that's in the body of Christ, what are you supposed to do? Do you remember from Colossians, the whole point of the sermon, you're supposed to what? Forgive. You're supposed to forgive. Now, this is really, really tough. Because we really don't understand forgiveness. But now you know what you're supposed to do in this. And that's why I was, I was talking about uh, Jesus used an illustration in Matthew chapter 11 about the fig tree. I'm not going to give you every detail about it, but Jesus cursed the fig tree because it didn't produce fruit. And then towards the end, a lesson of it, uh, I'm going to look at uh, verses 24 and following of chapter 11 of Mark. Uh, Therefore, I tell you, Jesus speaking, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And, whatever you st and whenever you stand praying, forgive. Do you hear that? Whenever you're standing to pray, you forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, did that what the Bible said? If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. It's really quite interesting how when you realize about all this stuff, the conflicts that arise are because we're sinners. Because we're really not putting on the practices of the new self. If we're walking together in Christ, we do bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And when we stumble or when we get in sin and we get caught up, when we take off some of the beautiful things, if that's even possible, we end up getting into conflicts that need to be forgiven. And that's one of the points. The complaining, you can find a lot of people have complained in Scripture. And I bet everybody in this room could give me a testimony of what it means to complain. All of you could. And I'm not just talking about complaining about me. 
You're complaining about the drivers. You're complaining about what's going on in the White House. You're complaining what's going on at the beach. You're complaining that you have to wear a mask, or you're complaining that you don't have to wear a mask. You're complaining that some people are telling you you have to shot, and then somebody told you you have to get a second shot, and then now they're telling you you have to get a third booster of it, and before long they'll tell you you have to get another shot. You see, we can complain about everything. The text here is the forgiveness is not about everybody else. It's about especially those in the body of Christ. Now, I told you that there are three main points to this sermon. The third one is forgiveness is a blessing from God. And this is why I want to explain how this flows from you. Notice that you can forgive because you have first been forgiven. Okay, and this is really very important. You have been forgiven. It's already done. You remember reading in chapter 2, verse 14? He already forgave you. He nailed it to the cross. All those people that are, that are clamoring at you to say, you are bad, you are bad, you have debts, you haven't owed them, you haven't kept up to your word, you didn't do this right. And everybody can, can have those. Most of us try to go gray, right? So that people won't notice you. But whenever you actually are like a light that shines... I think Kit Kennedy used to tell me, it's like the whack-a-mole. You know that you're going to get whacked if you pop your head up in righteousness. Now, a lot of us don't want to pop our head up because we're afraid of this. But this idea that you have already been forgiven is something that you have to, to, to let it seep in. Like putting a tea bag in a, in, a, in a cup. It's not immediate tea just because you put a tea bag in. Now, when when you think about this, Jesus paid your debt. He took the punishment for your sin. He wiped it away. He cleaned up your mess. He makes the case that you are not liable because somebody else has already paid it in full. It is a transaction, and it is done already. It is finished, to quote the Savior. If you're in Christ, you're already a new creation. The old has already been passed. You are in the way. And in the way, you are volitionally to put off the old practices and put on the new. And as you put on the new practices, you live life bearing it with each other. And when a conflict arises, that's when you're going to forgive. Why? Because you've already been forgiven. You know what it's like to be forgiven. Now, how can we forgive? This is part of our application. We are not able to forgive with a transaction. Oh, yes, you can pay for somebody's debt. You can even go through the toll booth and pay for somebody behind you. That's not forgiveness. It's nice. Uh, but, But it's not really quite the transaction. We are able to forgive because it flows from Christ through us. Okay, we are no longer the judge or the jury. And I was thinking of the Chauvin case, which uh, during Sunday school I found out nobody watched it. I guess maybe not many people did. Maybe you already felt that there is no justice or there already is justice that was already decided before it was done. But nevertheless, the whole point being is, is that if you're going to sit as the judge or as the jury, then you're going to be saying, hmm, you know, and you'll take your little notepad and you write down all the facts and you'll try to get all the details, right? Because if you, if you can get all the facts, then you can make a, you can render a judgment, Right? The problem is, is that if you're right and somebody is as bad a sinner as they are, What are you supposed to do about it? Send them to hell? Maybe you should curse at them. Maybe you could be like Job's wife. Just curse God too and then die. You know, we're always going to be dealing with people that disappoint us because we know that everybody has fallen in sin. We know from Jeremiah that our hearts are desperately wicked. They're prone to go in the wrong direction. Romans chapter one says, we exchange the glory of God and we've come up with our own alternatives. And postmodernism is right there and, and we're all doing it. We fall right into the trap because we're listening to all these postmodern voices instead of scripture, instead of the spirit of God who tells us we're one body in Christ. Now, once you realize that we're one body in Christ and we're not the judge or jury to send people to hell or not, probably they are guilty for doing what they did wrong. But the issue is here about forgiveness is that we don't have the power to forgive. When Jesus was up on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. I mean, that's an interesting thing. He's forgiving them when they have ignorance. They were yelling, crucify him, put him up there on the cross. They were saying, away with him, away with him. And Jesus looked at at them and he said, Father, they don't realize that their part in this is getting me to the cruel cross where I can pay for their sins. This is, it was so interesting that they didn't even know how bad it was that they were doing it. And Jesus says, don't hold them account for that. They got their own sins 
because they're trying to save themselves. Now, the forgiveness that we can give to others is not the same that Jesus can give because we can definitely pity people and say, man, those people are pretty dumb. They just don't know all the facts. They're running on this agenda and they're trying to do this. We can realize and we can use psychology and even figure out it might be because their dad was mean to them when they were little. Okay? It might be because they were the, the youngest of the, of the, of the group and they, they got left out. You know, whatever the reason that people are going to come up, we'd make decisions based on us. You know, if I were to go around the room and I ask you what you ate for breakfast this morning, you made a decision to eat or not to eat. And when you chose to eat, you made a decision either based upon what was available or what you wanted, right? Did everybody make the same decision? No. Some of you ate a lot of fat. I'm trying to stay away from that right now. Some of you ate a lot of sugar. And some of you are feeling so wonderful because you ate your oatmeal or whatever it is that's healthy for you. You understand what I mean? Is that all of these are decisions that are going on all the time. We're not the judge and jury to say whether you are or not a good steward of what you're doing or whether the lies have come out of your mouth or whether you've had anger and malice and some of these other things that are on the list. But I can tell you this, that you're not the one who gets to condemn people to hell that are already forgiven by the Father. Now, the dilemma comes in in this, is how do you walk together with someone unless they be agreed? If you guys are still battling, that's why when you have marital conflict, it's so sad. Because the two are supposed to bear with each other, and a lot of times, they're bearing apart. It's not supposed to be that way. And counseling is supposed to bring people together rather than say, <clears throat> just trade her in for a new model. That's what you get from a lot of people today. Go to Christian Mingle or wherever you go. I don't know where to go. I just heard that one recently. The thing that I'm trying to say to you is that the forgiveness that we're supposed to extend to people is not that they are forgiven of their sins. In John chapter 8, when there was the woman caught in adultery, she had all that sexual activity, and they were going to stone her because the Old Testament said, if you sin like that, you're supposed to die. And so they all brought these stones together, and Jesus was there, and they were trying to, cap they were trying to get Jesus to agree to kill this woman. And Jesus got down on the ground, and he wrote in the sand something, and then he said, whoever's without sin cast the first stone. You remember? And who cast the first stone? They all had sin. And they all went away. And then Jesus did something that really just frustrated them so much even more. He said, go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven you. We don't have the power to forgive somebody like that. I sometimes wish I could. As an ambassador of Christ, I can't say, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're not forgiven, you're forgiven. I don't have that power. I can tell you what the word of God is, and there's power in the word of God. And the power of the word of God says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to, to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. I mean, I can clearly and boldly tell you that, but I can't tell you your sins are forgiven. There is no man on earth that can do it. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul was arguing with them and saying Jesus is the Christ. And when he looks at the people that are in Colossae and he says, forgive each other. It'd be really nice if, if, if it would be just, you know, when you get into that next conflict, maybe with the person that's sitting right next to you right now. I forgive you, honey. It seems kind of lame. It feels like you're pulled the string out and you're, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. I mean, that's not true forgiveness. Okay, when he's saying that when you're, when you're bearing through the Christian life together and there arises a conflict, some tension, some issue that arises, which is usually, as I said, because of you're not putting on the beautiful things, then the last thing is, he says, you've got to remember that God forgave you first and therefore you can't hold that over them forever. You can't even hold that over them for a long time. When Jesus was walking the earth, he had his disciples and he says, when somebody does something wrong against you and they mistreat you and stuff, and then they come back and they say, uh, forgive me, you're supposed to say, okay. And when they do that the 10th time and the 70th time and the 77th time, you're supposed to say, okay. You almost think Jesus is teaching lunacy. 
Can you really think that in the flesh you could forgive somebody doing the same thing to you over and over and over and over and over after they said they would stop doing it and they did it anyway and they did it again and they did it again and they did it again? You get the point. And you would still be able to forgive them? There's no way that a human being can do that, but God can. And if God has done it to you, let me ask you this. Since you've been saved, have you had any days of perfection? No sins. Then he still had to forgive you of those sins, even though it's retroactive, so to speak, or it's, it's future active. I mean, it's really fascinating that we are going to fall short of the glory of God because we, in this life, we're constantly being given these imperatives. And hence, the church at Colossae, as I wrap up, the church at Colossae was no different from us. They were struggling. They heard the good news. They understood Jesus paid for sins, but they couldn't stand people not carrying their weight. They couldn't stand it when people were, were let me use the illustration of cleaning up the church. They would come and sit in a clean church, but they would never lift up a finger to clean it. It just felt so unfair. And sometimes it's like, mm, but because I have patience, I'll wait. And because I have meekness, I'm not going to let it out like I could. And because I'm humble, I'm going to realize that I could fall into the same trap. And because I'm kind, I'm going to put on my Christianese and say, isn't this a lovely day? Do you understand what I'm going through? Is that we have almost trained ourselves how we need to conduct ourselves. And we're often trying, trying, trying to do that in the flesh. The whole reason that this is in the book of Colossians is because we have been raised with Christ. We have been united to him. Because we've been forgiven, we have been brought into the body. We are no longer an alien. We are no longer left out. We are elect, the chosen of God, the holy people of God. We're set apart from the world, and this is us. And when we come together, we're not enemies with each other. Because we have the same head that's telling us the same message. And even though we may look alike, a hand or a hand, we're very different and when the master tells us what to do, we do it. We don't work in conflict. That hurts. Don't hurt people in the body of Christ. Be quick to forgive because every time you do forgive, it takes you back to the cross where, where you receive your forgiveness, where I receive mine. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, there are many people that are struggling with this whole idea of forgiving. Lord, in the book of Colossians, this is not a call to forgive the world. This is a call to forgive one another, the ones that we're bearing up through life with. This is the one, the call that is supposed to work with people who have put off the old flesh, the old self and its, and its, and its ways and has put on these new characteristics because Christ is working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Lord, we thank you that this good news changes us so that we don't have to have revenge. We don't have to get even. We don't have to step on other people. We do not have to step over them. We do not have to ignore them. We do not have to alienate them. Because if they're the body of Christ, oh Lord, I pray that you would restore them. Because people that are caught up in sin are supposed to be restored by spiritual people. People that walk in the spirit and not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh and of the old self. Lord, I pray that you would help us to lay aside that dark jacket of all those bad things. And I pray that even today, we would delight in even memorizing that list of the beautiful things that you would have us to do, even to be kind and everything else. And as the text says at the last verse, after we are told to forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ, to let love be the cement or the mortar that holds all the bricks together, because the love of God is the motivating factor. We forgive because you loved us and first forgave us. I pray that, that we will have a unity in the body of Christ that will reflect the doctrine that's been taught to the church in Colossae, to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Philippi, and, oh Lord, I pray to the church here in Lewis. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen.